Matthew chapter number 1. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. And uh, you're going to have to bear with me as I read this, because I'm going to be honest with you, it's not the most exciting reading. And you may say, well, preacher, how could you say that about the Word of God? Well, you'll see when we begin, amen, but uh, I believe you'll get a blessing out of the message tonight. The Bible says, "...the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren." And Judas begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar. And Perez begat Esram, and Esram begat Aram. And Aram begat Amminadab, and Amminadab begat Nason. And Nason begat Salmon. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rechab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. And Solomon begat Reboam, excuse me, and Reboam begat Abia, and Abia begat Asa. Asa begat Josaphat, and Josaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias, and Ozias begat Jotham, and Jotham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias. And Ezekias begat Manassas, and Manassas begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josias. Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel begat Abiad, and Abiad begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor. Azor begat Sadoc, and Sadoc begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliad. Eliad begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Mathan, and Mathan begat Jacob. Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Let's read all that again once more. No, I'm joking. All right, let's pray together this evening. Heavenly Father, Lord, I'd ask that you'd bless your word, that you'd use it in a way that glorify your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, show us the love of Calvary, and Lord, show us the cost of our sin debt. Help us to be careful to praise, honor, and glorify you in all that we do, and we'll be sure to thank you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As I began reading these names, I struggled with a few of them, mainly because I am used to pronouncing them in a way that you'd be more familiar with seeing them. For instance, as you read down through there and you see uh, the name Boaz, that's actually, we're familiar with the name Boaz from the book of Ruth. And uh, down Reboam in verse number 7, we'd be more familiar with that as Rehoboam. And uh, Josephat in verse number 8, we'd be more familiar with that name as Jehoshaphat. And so uh, all these names, some of them are more familiar to us than we even recognize. Now, as I began reading these uh, names, I'm sure there's some of you that thought, oh, I know exactly what preacher's going to preach on tonight, and you've heard some of these thoughts before. And then I'm sure there was at least one or two of you that thought, now, what in the world is preacher going to preach on tonight, just naming off a bunch of names? But do you know that in the inspired Word of God that we have sitting here before us, that everything is given for a reason? And you'll find many times great treasures in the details of the Word of God. What we have here before us, of course, is the genealogy of our Lord and Savior. Uh, But as I read through this genealogy, I I, I sit and think about some of the uh, ideas that a genealogy portrays to me. And, you know, we think about a family tree. And uh, can I say that if you begin to look, you're going to find uh, some blossoms on Christ's family tree. 
And I think about a a person's picture wall. You know, I don't know if you've got one of these in your house. You probably do, but you've got a a wall dedicated somewhere. And upon that wall, you have hanging various pictures of your ancestors, of your family that you have. And you've got it there to honor them and to think about them and to remember them. And here in Matthew chapter 1, we have, in a sense, uh, our Lord's picture wall. These are the names identified with the lineage of our Lord and Savior. As you've read through it, though, there's probably some things that did not jump out at you, but you'll find great interest in. Uh, In fact, if you read this genealogy, you'll find that of all the names, all but five of them are the names of men. Now, this was common in genealogies in the Word of God. In fact, women were very rarely ever mentioned in genealogies. In fact, there's only one woman in the Word of God whose death was even recorded, their their life history and their death, and that's Sarah, the wife of Abraham. And so many times women were not given a great amount of notice in these genealogies. It would simply be a lineage of the males in a family. But as you read through this passage, you'll find the name of five different women, five women that are named in this passage as being in the genealogy of Christ. And I'd say a few things about that. First, I would say that's a strange thing. Uh, Now, I'll be honest, sometimes you'll get more blessing out of the Word of God by reading the things you don't understand than you will reading the things you do understand. And when you read the Word of God and you come upon something that is confounding to you, uh, don't, don't duck and run. I mean, don't just get out of whatever book that is and run to the book of Psalms to find something that you understand a little bit easier. Spend some time understanding why God said what he said. This is a strange fact that these women are named. But I would say that because it's strange, and we know that God is a God of order, and God has a design for everything, we know he inspired his word, we know his word is perfect, I would say that this is a significant fact. Uh, This is not by accident. I mean, God wasn't just trying to, uh, you know, have a quality in the workplace, so to speak. Uh, God could have not left any women's names in there, and He would have still been God, and there would have been nothing we could have said. God did not do this just merely to, uh, uh, proverbially speaking, to, to throw a bone to a certain group of people. No, God has a significant purpose in what He's doing here. And as we study these tonight, I believe you're going to find out that not only is this a strange fact and a significant fact, but this is a spectacular fact that these five women are named. You'll find as you study their lives that these five women, four of them were Gentiles. Only one of them was a Jew. You'll find that the majority of them were not moral women, but they were immoral women. You'll find that these were uh, not necessarily the cream of the crop, so to speak, but rather they were trophies of grace for the purpose of showing God's goodness and God's plan. I'll go ahead and tell you who they are. The first is a young lady by the name of Tamar. And uh, Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah, the son of Jacob. We'll talk about her in a moment. Uh, The next one is Rahab. Many of us would know her as Rahab the harlot. The next is a young woman by the name of Ruth. And you'll see it down in verse number 5 when it says, uh, begat Obed of Ruth. And most of us know who Ruth is. In fact, uh, most ladies, if you ask them what their favorite uh, book in the Bible is, they'll usually either say Esther or Ruth. And uh, I don't think it's a coincidence those are the two books written by women. Amen. I mean, that's sexist. Call me call me strange. Amen. No, I'm picking at you. Is everybody okay tonight? Everybody seems a little... All right, everybody awake? It may take us a minute, Brother Ralph. I don't know what you did to them, but I'm going to have to undo it now. 
Now, that's unusual for these women to be in here, and Ruth is named amongst them. Uh, Down in verse number 6, you will find a woman that's named but not named. And this is significant. It says, And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. Now, this was Bathsheba, and it's recounted to us in 2 Samuel chapter number 11. And then finally, the one that I think most of us could probably guess down in verse number 16 is Mary, the earthly mother of our Lord and Savior. Now, you may say, well, preacher, what does all this mean? You've told me that these names are there. You've told me uh, to a degree what these names are, who these people are. But what is significant about these women? Let me say first off that they could have been left out of this genealogy if God had chosen to do so. Uh, Something you'll find, and the world doesn't like this, but it's still true. If you're going to have a child, it's going to take a man and a woman to do that. Amen? I mean, the world does not like that idea, but that's still true. Two men cannot produce a child. Two women cannot produce a child. It's going to take a man and a woman. So that means for every woman that's named here, there's a man to correspond with her uh, in this genealogy, and yet God uh, chose to shine a light upon these women. Uh, there's some things we can learn from their life, and every one of them has a backstory that to some degree is related in the Word of God. I would say that what this genealogy provides, if nothing else, is an association with the Son of God. Now, this is spectacular. Stop and think about what me and you as Christians have in the fact that we're saved. We're associated with the Son of God. Now, if that doesn't mean much to us, it's because we just don't think that much of the Son of God. But that's the truth tonight. I mean, if you've been born again, you're part of the family of God. That is a remarkable association. Not everybody can boast of that. I mean, I reject this doctrine of universalism. We're all God's creatures, but we ain't all God's children. Amen? Not everybody can boast of that. Uh, We can say unequivocally, if we've been saved, I'm part of the family of God. Of God, And in a temporal sense, that's the association that these women had. They were part of the lineage of the Savior. And I think if we take a moment and look at their backstory, we can find out something about the kind of people that God is willing, through the person of Jesus Christ, to associate with. Let's take a moment and look at Tamar. You'll find her there in verse number 3. Uh, her name is recorded here. It looks like Thamar, but it would be pronounced Tamar. And you'll find her story in Genesis chapter 38. Uh, Tamar was a Gentile woman. And she uh, was had been taken. She was an Adlamite. And she had been taken uh, for uh, Judah's son by the name of Ur. Judah, of course, was one of the twelve sons of uh, Jacob. And uh, Judah had began to uh, associate himself with these Gentile people. And he took a Gentile bride. And he took a Gentile bride for his son, his firstborn son, by the name of Ur. Now, the Bible teaches that because of Ur and because of the way he lived and because of his lifestyle, that God struck Ur dead. Uh, now, in the Old Testament, it was common. In fact, it was a responsibility uh, that if a man had had a wife and he died, if he had a brother that was not married, it was that brother's responsibility to marry his widow and to raise a family in that man's name. That was a responsibility that they had. Well, Ur had a brother by the name of Onan. How would you like to have that name? Amen. I mean, you talk about getting made fun of. His name was Onan. And so Judah goes to his son Onan and says, your brother Ur has died. You need to marry Tamar. You need to raise up children with her. And the Bible teaches us that Onan refused refused to do this. Onan rejected Tamar and refused to raise up a child uh, in the name of his brother 
earth. Well, after this happened, the Bible says because God was angry with Onan for shirking his responsibility and not obeying the Lord, that he struck Onan dead. Uh, well, there was one more child that was left, a young man by the name of Shula. And he was young at this time. And so Judah told Tamar, uh, Judah, who was Tamar's father-in-law, said, Tamar, I want you to wait and I want you to live as a widow in my house. And when my third son gets up old enough, I'm going to allow you to marry him. You'll finally have a husband. You'll finally have a family. Well, Tamar was satisfied to do that. And year began to go after year, after year, after year. And the boy got up old enough till he could have been married. And still Judah refused uh, to give his son to Tamar. Well, if you read the entire story, what you find is that Tamar, uh, for the purpose of having a child and seeking revenge, uh, one day when uh, Judah was leaving and going on a sojourn to uh, shear some of his sheep, Tamar went, dressed herself as a harlot, and deceived Judah into relations. And she became with child by her father-in-law, Judah. And Judah was, of course, angry when this was found out. And uh, he said, well, we're going to burn her to death. Well, uh, before Tamar had left that night, uh, she had gotten some of Judah's jewelry. And so she looks at Judah and says, well, whoever's jewelry this is, that's the man by whom I'm having this child, and shows Judah his uh, jewelry right there. Well, Judah realized, of course, that's my child. I'm not going to kill her. I'm not going to kill the child. Now, you say, preacher, why do you tell me all that? As you study the life of Tamar, you'll find one theme to run through it, and that is the theme of abandonment. You say, what do you mean, preacher? I mean, Tamar was an abandoned woman. Uh, The Bible tells us that her husband died. This was the most reproach and the most uh, tragic thing that could have happened to a woman at that time. Not only did it mean she was going to have to live a lonely life, uh, but it meant that her her wherewithal, her physical well-being and her financial well-being were absolutely shattered. I mean, the worst thing that could happen was for Tamar uh, to be struck dead, or for her husband to be struck dead. And then upon that, it was of Ur's own doing that he was killed. In a sense, I'm sure Tamar felt abandoned when Ur died. But here is Onan. Onan is her hope. Onan is the possibility of a happy life. But Onan deserted her. Her husband died, but her helper deserted her. He refused to be with Tamar. And there's a third son left, and all of her hopes are found in this third young man. But it becomes evident that he too has abandoned her. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this. I'm saying that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is interested in abandoned people. Do you know that every sinner born into this world, every person born into this world is born a sinner? And do you know that sooner or later, uh, the sinner will be abandoned both by the world and by the devil and by sin? Don't think for one moment that because you uh, have a good time and you have people around you and people seem to appreciate you, you've got friends, uh, if you're not saved by the grace of God, don't think for one moment that they won't leave you the second that the good time runs out. Look in Luke chapter 15 at the prodigal son. If ever there was a picture of an abandoned young man, it's the prodigal son. While his pockets were deep and while the wine was flowing and while the music was going, while everything was going well, he had all the friends you could imagine. But the moment that things came up short... Everyone abandoned him. 
I'm thankful that even when everyone abandons me in my life, and I don't mean to sound like I've got some kind of sob story, I've got a wonderful family, church family, uh, a few people called friends, and, uh, you know, you've got bill collectors, they ain't never going to abandon you, amen. But, uh, you know, I've got people in my life, but, but can I say to you that uh, just as the psalmist who said, uh, when my mother and father uh, forsake me, the Lord will lift me up, I understand that the Son of God will not abandon me. I'm part of the family of God. Can I say that the Son of God, not only will He not abandon someone that everyone else has abandoned, but He's actually looking for people that others have abandoned. He said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. When something is lost, you, you know a few things about it. One thing that you know is that it's not in its proper place. Do you know that a fallen sinner is not in the place that God designed for them to be in? Uh, God had a desire for humanity to have fellowship with Him. Uh, Part of the reason we're lost is because we're not in the proper place. We've fallen away from God. We've fallen into depravity. If something's lost, you understand that it has no capacity in and of itself to get back where it needs to be. Amen? I remember when I was growing up, uh, you know, I don't know if you was like this, but when I was growing up, the, the grocery store was a playground. You know what I mean? I was little and I'd go with Mama and I'd wander around and walk around. Every once in a while, I'd get lost. Don't look at her like she's a bad mother because there's some of you ain't never found yours that went missing in the grocery store, amen? They just moved into the freezer and stayed there. But, uh, you know, I, I would get lost and you would have to go uh, up to the front. And I always knew you could go up to the front and find somebody that looked official and tell them, say, I'm lost. They'd get on that loudspeaker and they'd begin to project that through the store. And they, and they, would, they would come through and they'd say, Judy Weber, you are a bad mother. Come get your child at the front. I understood that I didn't have the capacity to be found myself or to find myself. I was lost and someone else had to find the answer for me. Amen? That's what it means to be abandoned. To be without hope and be without help. That's the kind of people that God's interested in tonight. That's the kind of people that God came, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came not to call the righteous under repentance, but sinners. And there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that cometh to repentance than over ninety and nine just persons that need no repentance. Tamar is a picture of the abandoned. And I would say that the abandoned can have association with the Son of God. Then we have a young lady in verse number 5 uh, that the Bible calls Rahab. That's how you would say it. If you were Jewish, you'd say Rahab. Uh, but we would know her as Rahab the harlot. Her story is found in Joshua chapter number 2. She lived in a city called Jericho. She was a harlot by trade. And God had determined that He was going to overthrow the city of Jericho. And we've, uh, many of us have heard ever since we were little uh, children in Sunday school about the overthrow of the walls of Jericho. But the Bible teaches that there was a uh, woman named Rahab and she had hid some spies that had come into Jericho and were spying out the city. And so they offered to her the grace of God. And they said, if you'll but take a scarlet thread and hang it from your window. Uh, she lived inside the walls of the city, said that when these walls come down, God's going to protect you and whoever's in your household. Now, that's grace if I've ever heard grace. She didn't do anything to deserve that. And she was a woman that I would say uh, would be identified with the obscene. If Tamar is a picture of the abandoned, I believe that Rahab is a picture of the obscene, that which is wicked and uh, adulterous, that which is uh, black to the very core, that which is vile and wretched. That was Rahab. Her entire life spoke of this. She was cursed in three different ways. I'd say, first off, she was a cursed person because of her actions. She was a harlot. 
And let me say that I'm sure there's a thousand sad stories for a thousand broken people. But at the end of the day, Rahab was a harlot because she chose to be a harlot. That was her own decision in her life. Do you know that you and I, though we're born sinners, we're also sinners by action? We've chosen to sin. You say, I never have. Well, let me talk to your spouse. I bet they'd tell a different story. We've all chosen to sin, and by our actions we are a cursed people. But Rahab was also cursed because of her ancestry. She was a Gentile. She was alienated from the Word of God and from the truth of Jehovah. And because of who she was and because of who her ancestry was, uh, she was destined to die alienated from God. And do you know that's you and me, born sinners into this world? Our parents, Adam and Eve, when Adam chose to sin, he spun the whole world into depravity, and we have inherited a sin nature. But I would say she was also cursed because of her abode. She lived in a cursed city. In fact, God would later go on to say about Jericho that cursed is any man that rebuilds this city. And if you read through the Word of God, you'll find times that men tried, times when the sword entered into their house and uh, absolutely decimated their family life because they tried to build this cursed place. Uh, Not only did she do cursed things, not only was she from cursed people, but the place that she dwelt in was cursed. And I'd say, friend, that we live in a sin-sick world. We live in a world that's destined for destruction. And I, I understand everybody thinks it's going to be global warming. I, you know, I always like to tell people, I mean, I believe in global warming. I just believe it's going to get a lot hotter a lot quicker than they do. Amen? The Bible says that the elements shall melt with fervent heat. I believe that. I hope you do too. We live in a cursed, sin-sick world. But listen, I'm thankful that the Son of God was willing to come to this world, this sin-sick, wretched world, become a man and die on a cross for you and for me. God's interested in those that are in the depths of sin. God doesn't look at those in the depths of sin and shove them away and cast them off. No, when God saw a sin-sick world, He sought to redeem it, and He can save any and all today that will come to Him. Rahab is a picture of the obscene. Verse number 5 gives us the name of another young lady by the name of Ruth. Most of us are familiar with Ruth's story. It's the romance of redemption. And in fact, if you read the book of Ruth, and I really think this is why so many uh, ladies tend to like the book of Ruth, it's a love story. That's what it is. It's a love story, not only uh, between Ruth and Boaz, but between God and Ruth. And it, it portrays to us the love of the Son of God to you and I. But what really was Ruth? The Bible teaches us that Ruth was a little Moabitess girl. Uh, She was in a place uh, that was wicked and ungodly, a place that had no knowledge of God. Uh, There in that land, she came to know uh, a young man and married him. He had a mother by the name of Naomi. And you've heard the story many times about what took place in that uh, Moabitess house. It wasn't long before uh, Ruth and Orpah, the other woman that had married the brother of her husband, they were all living together, and uh, all of a sudden Ruth's father-in-law dies. And then after Ruth's father-in-law dies, the two brothers die shortly after. And here are these three women, absolutely desolate in this pagan land. Well, they decide that, uh, Naomi decides that she has nothing left for her in Moab. She's going to go back to Bethel. And she determines that she's going to leave. And she looks at these two young ladies, uh, Ruth and Orpah, and says, There's no reason for you to come with me. There's nothing for you back in Bethel. Why would you follow me there? Stay here. Find you another young man. Marry another young man. Orpah, she wept and she moaned and she cried. But at the end of the day, she chose to stay in Moab. But that wasn't good enough for this young lady named Ruth. She loved Naomi. 
And she knew she had a duty to serve her and to go with her and to help her. And she said, Naomi, wherever you go, uh, your gods are going to be my gods and your people are going to be my people and I'm going to stick with you. You're not getting rid of me. Even if you want to get rid of me, I'm going with you. She goes to Bethel, and there, back in Jerusalem, the Bible teaches that Naomi and Ruth live together. Naomi changes her name to Mara, which means bitterness. It's the name from which we get the name Mary. And she said that the Lord had made her bitter. And there she lived. She was a broken woman. She was a desolate woman. She was a bitter woman. And she had this young girl named Ruth living with her. Uh, what What a fascinating dynamic to surround Ruth's life. She could have gone so many different directions. But do you know the direction she went? One day she went out to the fields of a man by the name of Boaz. Boaz was an older man. And Boaz had uh, much riches and he had many fields. And in that time it wasn't uncommon uh, for uh, women that were widows and had no means of providing for themselves to go out to the fields of these wealthy landowners and to glean what was dropped by those that were uh, carrying the sheaves from the field. Uh, Well, one day Ruth's out there and she's kind of picking up these things, and Boaz comes out, and he sees her, and he goes, and now you won't get this in the English, Brother Ralph, you're going to have to look at the Hebrew to get this, Uh, and Boaz, he goes, that was what he said, (laughs) he said, look at her, what a pretty young, what, what what a beautiful young lady that is, well, you know how things go in a small town, word begins to go back and forth, and a relationship develops, a romance develops, and Boaz decides he's going to marry Ruth. Well, there was a problem in that time. You remember I told you earlier about the scenario of what we call a kinsman redeemer. Uh, That meant that whoever was the next of kin to the deceased person had the right, not only to that man's bride and to his children, but also to his land and also to his uh, wealth. And he could go and he could buy uh, his uh, wife and his land. He could pay off his debts, and that would all be his. Well, Boaz wanted to marry Ruth, but the problem was there was a kinsman that was nearer than him. Uh, There was someone uh, that had a first right to her. Do you know that the devil, listen carefully, because of our sin, the devil is the one we're in bondage to, and sin is who we're in bondage to. We can't pay that debt. We can't break ourselves free of it. Uh, But do you know what Boaz did? Uh, He went to this kinsman redeemer, and this kinsman redeemer found out that he could have uh, Ruth, uh, or he could have the land that had belonged to Ruth's husband, but he was going to have to take Ruth too. And he said, well, you know, I want that land, but I don't want Ruth. I heard one preacher put it this way. said, made Ruth feel like she was worth less than dirt, and she was. He wanted the land, but he didn't want her. I didn't bother Boaz one bit. That fellow passed up on it. And Boaz went and he paid the price, and he bought Ruth unto himself. What a beautiful story that is. But as you look at Ruth's life, you'll find, and I, I use this word, I believe it's accurate, uh, that if Tamar represents to us those that are abandoned, And if Rahab represents uh, those to us that are the obscene, I would say that Ruth represents to us the afflicted. She was a woman that had been absolutely destroyed by her circumstances. I mean, she had been stricken by death uh, whenever her husband died and her brother-in-law died and her father-in-law died. She was stricken by dearth, by poverty, by famine. Uh, The whole reason they had left Bethel was because there was a famine there. And then they get to Moab and the men that are able to earn and to provide, they die too. And I would say she was also uh, stricken by desertion. Everyone had left her. Orpah had gone. That was just her. And Naomi, she had lived a life of affliction. Do you know the sinner's not even really aware of how afflicted that they are? Uh, you know why? Because they think what they've got is the best that there is. Listen carefully to what I'm saying to you tonight. 
A lost sinner can't comprehend. And listen, when I was lost, I could have never comprehended what it would mean to be a Christian. I mean, uh, you know, I I was a ten-year-old boy. Everything seemed fine. But then when God made me aware of how lost I was and made me aware of all that He could do through Calvary's blood, it changed me. And most sinners, they the dismal existence that they live is all that they think that there is. They live a life of hopelessness. They live a life of helplessness. They go from year to year and toil uh, from year to year thinking that that's the best that there is. Can I tell you there's something greater than what this world can offer? This world offers nothing but affliction and sorrow. And I understand sin has pleasure, but it just has pleasure for a season. It's not long before it leaves you feeling empty and broken. And Ruth, this little Moabitess girl, had been left empty and broken until Boaz, who's a picture of the Son of God, entered into her life. He made her worthwhile. He paid her price. He took her unto himself. He married her. He gave her a life. He gave her something worth living. Could I say that God's interested in people in that shape? In fact, I'd almost go as far as say God isn't interested in anybody except those that know they're afflicted. Those that know that sin is not enough. Those that know this world is not enough. Those that know there's something wrong in their life that God must correct. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we have another uh, story given to us of the fourth lady that's mentioned. You'll find her name down in verse number 6. Actually, curiously enough, you won't find her name, but you'll find her circumstances. And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. We're familiar with him by the name of Uriah the Hittite. In 2 Samuel chapter number 11, the story is given that there came a time when kings went forth to war. But David chose during this time to not go forth to war, and we could stop and preach a whole sermon about being where we need to be, when we need to be, in the will of God. Uh, But suffice it to say that David had a choice, and he chose to stay back. He stayed in his palace as well. It was customary at this time all the men would go forth and go away to war and uh, leave only the women there, and the king should have been out at the front leading them, but he wasn't. David is upon his balcony one day, and he looks down, and he sees a woman by the name of Bathsheba, and she's bathing upon the rooftop. David sees her, and he desires her, he lusts after her, and he commands Bathsheba to come in unto his house, and he lays with Bathsheba, and she's with child. Well, David now must find out how he's going to cover this up. And so his decision is to pull her husband, Uriah the Hittite, back from the front line of battle. And David decides, well, what I'll do is I'll make Uriah believe that it's his child. I'll bring him home for a night of rest and relaxation and romance. Let him spend the evening with his wife, uh, as men at battle would so often long to do. And surely when it's discovered that she's with child, he'll just believe that's his child. Well, he brings Uriah home. But Uriah is a man of too valiant of honor to be taken in by that. It's not that Uriah knew what David was doing. It's just that he was an honorable man. And Uriah says to David, I'm not going to go home. I'm not going to go home. My brethren are dying upon the field. I'm not going to go home. I'm going to stay here. If I can do nothing else, I'll stay here. I'll sleep on the steps of the palace if I have to, and I'll watch after you. Well, no doubt this frustrated David. So David tries again. He fails again. So finally David decides, well, I'm going to take a different approach. He sends Uriah back to the battle, and he sends word uh, to his general by the name of Joab. And he says, Joab, when the battle is at its hottest, I want you to put Uriah on the front line. Joab carried out the deed 
of his backslidden king, Uriah, was killed. By the way, Uriah was one of David's closest friends. He's listed amongst the mighty men of David, those that were close personal confidants and friends. That's how far sin... Sin will cause you to hurt people you would have never hurt. But here's Bathsheba. What happens? Well, the Bible teaches us that the child died. That David mourned and wept for the child, but that the Lord's will for their family was for that child to die. And that child did die. Afterwards, David goes in unto Bathsheba to comfort her. And she's with child with Solomon. Let me say this, that if, if, if Tamar presents to us those that are abandoned, and if uh, Rahab presents to us those that are obscene, And if Ruth presents to us those that are afflicted, I would say that Bathsheba presents to us those that have been abused by sin. Now, there's a lot of debate, I understand, about Bathsheba, whether she was to blame, whether she wasn't. Uh, But let me say this, regardless of whether she was culpable in this act, it still doesn't change the fact that sin took and wrecked her life. The devil, has it as, the devil has no interest in giving us happiness. None. And the devil never does make one sinner happy. And sin never makes one sinner happy. And the world never makes one single sinner happy. And you can go through the Word of God or you can go through the vast uh, chronology of human experience and you'll find this to be the case. Sin always wrecks and it always destroys and it had destroyed Bathsheba's life. It caused her husband to be killed. It caused her to lose her child. And as you read the, uh, the chapter of Proverbs 31 on a virtuous woman, you can almost hear the heartbreaking pathos of warning that she's giving to Solomon concerning the way he lives. I kind of think maybe she was warning him uh, against living much the same way that his daddy had done at times. You say David was a man after God's own heart, and there's no question that he was, but he was still a man, and he still made mistakes, and he still sinned. Bathsheba knew the heartache of what sin was. And yet she's mentioned in the genealogy of the Son of God. That tells me this, that that Christ, He doesn't shy away from helping those that have been hurt and abused by sin. Do you know sin is still harming people to this day? Sometimes it's a person's own sin. Sometimes it's the sin of another. But sin always, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Uh, But the Bible says that Christ came that we might have life, that we might have it more abundantly. That's the very type person that God came for and is seeking. I don't know where we got the understanding in our mind uh, that Christ came for religious folk. You won't find that anywhere in the Word of God. In fact, you'll find that He never spoke harshly to a lost and dying sinner uh, that was aware of their sin sickness. But time and time again, He would scathe with a tongue of judgment uh, the Pharisees that refused to believe that they were in condemnation. God's interested in saving those that are lost and undone. I want to give you one final one, and I'm done. Look at verse 16, and we find a woman by the, young na- by the name of Mary. The Bible says, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary. This was the earthly mother of the Son of God. And let me just simply say that if Tamar represents to us those that are abandoned, And if Rahab represents to us those that are obscene, if Ruth represents those to us uh, that are afflicted, and if Bathsheba represents to us those that are abused, I would say that Mary represents to us those that are obscure, those that are insignificant. That's a word that we don't really think about quite often. What does it mean to be insignificant? It means for there to be nothing extraordinary 
concerning your life. It means for you to be, we might use the word ordinary or plain or common. This was Mary. We don't have a lot told us about Mary. Uh, we know that she was uh, uh, esteemed uh, great among women. And by the way, that's important that it says that she was esteemed greatly among women, not above women, uh, but among women. Uh, Mary was a human being. She was not a deity. She was not a perpetual virgin. Uh, she was simply a young woman that God used for a very special task. Reckon wonder what it was that caused God to pick her. We could go through her life and point out several things, but let me just say it was this. It was because her heart and life were wholly given to Jesus Christ. That's what, that's what gained her a spot in this genealogy. And I would say that Mary, in many ways, has the chief spot in this genealogy. I mean, we're not talking about uh, 10 or 11 generations back, but the very one that God entrusted to raise up His only begotten Son in His earthly form. That's remarkable. That this young woman, the Bible does call her a virgin, and she is a virgin, but she is also a young woman. We don't know how old that Mary was. Typically, the language used to describe uh, a person of Mary's age would have been someone around the age of maybe 13, 14, 15 years old. I mean, we're not talking about a 25, 26, 27, 28, 30-year-old. We're talking about a young girl. And yet God used her. In a remarkable way. Do you know this is God's pattern? <laughs> if you read 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, you'll find that God uh, hath not chosen the wise and the mighty and the powerful, but God hath chosen the weak things and the things which are not to bring to naught the things which are. You say, what does that mean? That means God chooses the things which are just nothing to bring to nothing or to confound or decimate, uh, to bring to oblivion those things which are something. Those things which are great. God is not looking for extraordinary people. God's extraordinary enough. He's just looking for people. Can I say that again? I don't, I don't know if we got that. God is not looking for extraordinary people. God is extraordinary enough. He's just looking for people. I mean, God is not looking for talented people because talent isn't what gets it. Skill is not what gets it. Uh, the ability to speak and uh, uh, use words in a flowery way, that's not what gets it. Uh, great money is not what gets it. Great power is not what gets it. God has all that He needs except the human instrumentality to exercise His will. He needs what the Bible calls a vessel. A vessel. A lot of different vessels, and the Bible gives us that analogy when it says that in a great house there are uh, divers' vessels. Uh, some uh, of wood and some of gold. And those vessels, it does not really matter whether they're gold or whether they're wood, as long as they can be used to hold and to pour and to dispense that which is put into them. And that's, that's the very truth concerning the life of the believer. I mean, you, you know, you may be what the world would consider a vessel of gold. I'd be careful about patting myself on the back. Uh, you may be what the world would consider a vessel of wood, and you may be very insignificant. I, I wouldn't let that get me discouraged one bit, because it's not the material, it's the manner in which it's used that makes a vessel worthwhile. Mary was no one extraordinary, just a young woman, probably terrified to death if you really knew the truth of it. Probably scared to death, but she chose to put her faith in God and to yield herself to be used of God. And because she did that, here she is. Uh, 2,000 years later, you'll hear upon the lips of millions of people this Christmas season the name of Mary. Why? Was it because of something great that she did? No, it was because she yielded herself. 
Because she gave herself to God and allowed God to use her life. That's what God, that's who God is looking for. That's who God is interested in. He's not, he's not looking for people with great clout. He's looking for people with great submission. It encourages me tonight, and I'll be honest, I don't even know really where to go from what I've said. But I do know this, that God has a purpose and plan in it. I know that there are at least one category of people in this room, maybe two categories, because I don't know any man's heart. Uh, but there's only two categories of people in this world, and that's saved or unsaved people. We all fall into one of those two categories. And if you're saved by the grace of God, can I say to you tonight that though you may be obscure concerning the world's standards, that doesn't mean you can't be used in a great and mighty way. You're the exact person that God's looking for. And I know we struggle to believe that because sometimes we feel as though no one is interested in us. But the fact is, God is interested in us. That's what Calvary proves, if it proves nothing else, is that God's interested in humanity. Or maybe you're here tonight and you'd say, well, you know, I'm just not sure if I am saved. Could I say you're the exact kind of person God's looking for so that He can save them? You say, well, you don't know how bad I am. Well, I don't care how bad you are, and God doesn't either. Uh, he tasted death for every man, not for men that wouldn't take much work to save. Amen? tasted death for every man. He didn't taste death only for those that hadn't done all that many bad things. He tasted death for every man. And you may have loved ones. I'm always interested in the Christmas season. We're going to see people during the Christmas season that we won't see at any other time during the year. And there is a good chance, especially as you get older in life, that there's going to be some people that you're going to see over the next couple of weeks that you'll never see again this side of eternity. And maybe if God doesn't intervene in their life, you won't see them on the other side of eternity. You know, God can use you, and you may feel insignificant. You may say, well, you know, preacher, I'm not, I'm not much of a talker, much of a speaker. Well, you don't have to be. If you'll just take the simple truth of the Word of God and the testimony of what Christ has done for you in your life, and with love and compassion, share the truth of Calvary, you'd be amazed what God can do in the life of your family and your friends. But here's the issue that I want you to understand tonight. All five of these women were found in this genealogy because of one truth. And it was the truth of surrender. Every one of them was surrendered to God in one way or another. Some of them totally, some of them only partially. But every one of them God gives in this genealogy because of that truth. They were in the genealogy. And the thing that's interesting, Brother Ralph, is several of them in this genealogy didn't even have to be in the genealogy for the genealogy to exist. You have Ruth, who was a Gentile. You have Tamar, who was a Gentile. You have Rahab, who was a Gentile. You have Bathsheba, who was a Gentile. None of these women had to be in the genealogy of our Lord and Savior. Not a single one of them. Every one of them were, so to, so to speak, dispensable to Christ's genealogy. And yet they're found there. Why? Because they surrendered their lives in one way or another. So tonight, if God's been dealing with you about something in your life, I would encourage you to surrender your heart and life to Him and to find yourself placed in the family of God just as these women did.